Yeah, so we were really focused through that, you know, kind of MVP phase at at proving the most key parts of our thesis. One of the advantages of what we were doing is that we understood our problems pretty closely because we had previously experienced them. But one of the risks of that is that I think you can over-index on your own experience. And so we were pretty focused on building just enough to kind of act as a prop almost in conversations with some of those early beta customers or private beta customers where, you know, we essentially just wanted to make sure that our view of the world wasn't so unique that, that this wasn't a real market. My name is Michael Zerker, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Prismatic. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Michael Zerker built the platform he wished he'd always had to integrate solutions to your platform. All this and more on Code Story. Michael Zerker has been in tech since he was young, starting his first company when he was 19 years old. A lot of his path to his current place is through that prior company. He's married with three kids, living in South Dakota, and is a pilot. Beyond these things, he's a machinist as a hobby. In fact, he created logos cut out of metal for his current team as they shipped their MVP. In his prior company, Michael built a numerous amount of productized integrations across his platform and thousands of customers. No matter their state of growth, these integrations were always a significant challenge. After selling the company in 2018, he decided to build the thing he wished he had back then. This is the creation story of Prismatic. Prismatic is a integration platform that is focused on helping software companies provide integrations to their customers that connect their product to the other products their customers use. So as a software company, no matter what your product is at this point in, you know, in the in the evolution of software, you need to connect to lots of other things. And those integrations can, in some cases, be pretty simple and in some cases be pretty, pretty complex. But regardless, there's this, this kind of whole layer of complexity around providing those in a scalable and reasonable way. And, and Prismatic is a platform that enables software companies to, to build and maintain those integrations easier, to deploy them to large customer bases in an easier way, and even to provide a user experience to their customers such that they can you know, turn those integrations on and off, make configuration changes, that kind of thing. I, I previously had a company that did software for law enforcement, and I, I grew that for about, about 16 years. And in that process, we built 600 productized integrations across our customer base. So we had a couple thousand customers, 600 integrations from our product to other products that our customers, law enforcement agencies used. And as we grew, that was a huge burden on our you know, ability to onboard quickly on our sales cycle. And it was a just kind of whether we were small or whether we as we got larger, it, it never stopped being a really significant challenge. You know, we did all kinds of things as we grew over the course of you know, more than a decade to address some of those problems, you know, and we even went out and, and basically tried to find a prismatic-like thing to um, to buy and, and use internally. But what we kind of came to realize is that although 
there are lots of integration platforms in the world, and there certainly were, you know, five years ago when I was at my previous company as well. None of them are really focused on helping software companies, like I said before, connect their products to the other products their customers use. And at my previous company, we experienced exactly that. So I sold that company in 2018 and, and exited. And in that process, it kind of stuck with me, I guess, that, that integrations at, at, at that company were, were a somewhat unsolved problem, at least at scale. Like I said, I, I moved on and my previous CTO pulled the ripcord about a year after I did and left my previous company. And so he and I and one other person teamed back up to start Prismatic to essentially say, we're going to build the thing we wish we always had. Let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take to build? And what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? You know, the MVP for us is, is a little bit of a, a probably a fuzzy area. It wasn't it wasn't like we, we had this exact vision of exactly what an MVP was. And when we built it, we suddenly put a stake in the ground and said, here's the MVP. But, you know, over the course of the first 12 months or so, we kind of built toward a, you know, something approaching a version one. And I think somewhere along there, you would call it an MVP. We were in a unique situation. In a way, we were our own first customer from our experience. We were able to use that to build an MVP, I guess, kind of fairly deeply, fairly quickly. We also had some really great kind of early private beta customers that we worked with along the way. We're a software product. It's a, it's a platform. And so, you know, I guess from a tools perspective, we built it with all of the software development tools you'd expect, you know, Node and TypeScript, and it's built on top of AWS and it has Python in the back end and, and a, you know, a PostgreSQL database. So, you know, I guess, I guess in a lot of ways, just kind of a traditional software stack. Obviously, as we got kind of closer and closer to a real version one over that first 18 months, the product kept getting more and more complex and tooling got more and more complex with it. And then, you know, we kind of had this stake in the ground as we shipped what, what we called a version one. And I think it was probably a bit beyond a classic MVP. That's when we felt like we could have mission critical customers on the platform in a real way. And we've been growing ever since then. Let's stay on the MVP for a little while. And, you know, maybe at a high level, I could extract from some of the things you're saying where I want to go with this next question, but I'm going to ask it open. With any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? Around maybe, you know, feature cut, tech deck, focus, the whole thing. Tell me about those decisions that you had to make and specifically how you coped with those decisions. Yeah, so we were really focused through that, you know, kind of MVP phase at at proving the most key parts of our thesis. One of the advantages of what we were doing is that we understood our problems pretty closely because we had previously experienced them. But one of the risks of that is that I think you can over-index on your own experience. And so we were pretty focused on building just enough to kind of act as a prop almost in conversations with some of those early beta customers or private beta customers where, you know, we essentially just wanted to make sure that our view of the world wasn't so unique that, that this wasn't a real market. And so we made trade-offs, I guess, kind of with that in mind. We wanted to do whatever it took to prove out X, Y, and Z pieces of the thesis. We would build just enough to do that. And, you know, and obviously in the, in the kind of classic way, if it ends up that you were wrong, you don't have that much to throw away because you didn't build that much. Obviously, you know, you're, you're also making some trade-offs. You mentioned tech debt. You're also making some trade-offs around, I suppose, things like tech debt, but also things like scalability. 
you could build a platform like, like Prismatic, infinitely scalable from day one, and you would never ship version one. Or you can, you know, drive to a version one and, and you know, try to make good decisions along the way, but expect that you're going to do some of that scaling work and, and, you know, eliminate some of the tech debt decisions as you go. And so certainly we made those trade-offs as well. Some of those are really obvious and easy to do. Some of them are pretty painful in some ways because you recognize that there's a certain way that would be the really nice way to do something from a technical perspective. But, you know, it's until you have enough customers to make that a real problem worth solving, it's maybe not worth your time. So I, I think those were kind of the trade-offs that we saw. It, it evolved very organically as we went. Okay, so you've got your MVP and it's working. Tell me about how you took that MVP and progressed it and matured it. And I think to wrap that question in a box, what I'm looking for is how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Prismatic. We did everything we could to get those signals from from our customers and from the market. And we had countless conversations with both customers and I suppose prospective customers or just companies in the market to try to get as many signals as we could and, and make roadmap decisions as we went. We always had a pretty, I guess, clear view of where we wanted to get. And so to some extent, it was just sequencing the order in which to do things. And so, you know, as we progressed post the MVP, to some extent, it was just kind of continue on the path, but, but continue building out the vision. Now, that was probably 50% of what we did in the roadmap, and, and the other 50% were probably net new things that we learned as we had an increasing number of customers on the platform and, you know, increasingly were focused on on what we were seeing with their, their usage and, and the ways they were making use of the platform. So then let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? It was probably the early 2000s. There was a, a blogger at the time named Joel Spolsky, who many of the you know listeners of this podcast probably know. And he always used to talk about people who are smart and get things done. And I think that is a really succinct way to describe what, what we look for. You know, we want people who have plenty of raw horsepower, but we also want people who know how to actually put that to use and get real concrete things done. Those skills are sometimes hard to find in one individual, you know, both smart and gets things done. And so, um, you know, that's something that we've really focused on. I, I will say that I, I got off a little bit easy as we built the team in that, you know, I, I had previously built a team of a of a few hundred people and, and was able to attract some of those as we, um, you know, as we got farther along. And so the team today is probably about half people that had been at my previous company at some point, and um, probably half people that are um, net new. Okay, let's flip to scalability. And, you know, this, this question kind of goes all over the place when I ask, so I'm curious where you're going to take it. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or at least with scale in mind? Or have you been fighting this as you grow and gain traction? So I am a very big believer in getting unit economics around a business right as early as possible. I think in the, the kinds of markets that I've been in, in the software world at least, the offer to the market has to be designed with that kind of scalability in mind. If the unit economics work out, a lot of the rest takes care of itself. If the unit economics don't work, you're going to just run into problem after problem as you grow. And so from that perspective, we were certainly focused on scalability from the beginning. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we built everything to have the systems and processes and team size and everything that you would have in a mature company early on, because obviously, you know, you don't have the resources to do that. And if you focused on that, you wouldn't get a product shipped and and get your first um, customers. The, the shape of this, everything from the pricing model to the, the way that we onboard customers to the way the tech works, that all has to lead to a model that works as you scale. I think a lot of that comes from previous experience. You know, I kind of probably made about every mistake you can make in 16 years in my previous company. And, uh, you know, although I'm sure I'm destined to repeat some of those here, I think we probably had some some viewpoints that were informed by the past as far as, um, you know, getting a lot of those things aligned from day one. As you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think the whole team here is very proud of the fact that, you know, we set out on this journey three, three and a half years ago with a thesis about what the integration market for software companies should do. And that was, you know, informed by our previous experience and by, you know, plenty of research that we did along the way. But at the time was certainly not a an easy bet to make, I guess. And here we are three, three and a half years later, and we've, we've just kind of watched piece by piece a lot of that come true in the market. I think we're all really proud of the fact that we, we built a product that helped define that market, and we built the product that, that it turns out the market needed, even when the market didn't know that it needed that. And so, you know, obviously a lot of details in that, but I think it all kind of rounds to that, that general theme, that it's, it's a really... It's a really rewarding thing to watch your kind of thesis as a company get validated as a market emerges and and to be a, you know, a core part of that. Okay, let's flip the script a little bit then. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. That's a good question. Obviously, we have made many, many, you know, small mistakes along the way. And, and I think that, you know, our team in general is probably one that is pretty hard on ourselves with, with a lot of those little product misalignments or things we should have done sooner or faster or whatever. But I, I think the, the one that comes to mind is the way that we went about building this platform with, with kind of a handful of, of key pieces could have been done in a simpler way had we built those pieces essentially in a different order. And some of that didn't come to mind until, or didn't didn't become apparent until a little bit farther down the line. You know, none of that matters anymore because we're past it now. But, you know, we certainly spent a few months wandering a bit in a way that I, I wish we hadn't, you know, just because we probably missed a little bit on what the overall vision was, you know, at the very beginning. Okay, this is always a blast to ask. Tell me what the future looks like for Prismatic, the product, and for your team. Prismatic is in a really fun part of its growth in that we have, I, I think, proven product market fit. We have proven sales motions, you know, that take this to the market. And at this point, we're just in, in, a, in a very high growth mode. And so with that comes, you know, a, a growing team, a, a product that has more investment behind it every month than it did the month before, uh, an exploding customer base, which is always just really energizing as a company. 
you know, we're, we're at a really, really great inflection point or maybe just past the inflection point where, you know, this, this is going to be a very fast growing thing for, for quite some time. And especially coming out of a couple of the first three years where, you know, you're, you're in, you're in study mode and you're in build mode and you're in, you know, not, not quite stealth mode, but you certainly don't have many people paying a lot of attention to you. It's, it's really fun for both the team and the, you know, and, and, and for me, to, to see us kind of having moved out of that, um, you know, start up the growth curve at a really rapid rate. So, you know, what's the future hold? I think the next few years is going to be exciting here at Prismatic. Like I kind of said before, I think we've proven that this this market is a very fast-growing greenfield market, and we have a product that resonates super well in that market. And I think we're just going to keep investing in the things that make Prismatic the right answer for our customers. And we're going to, um, you know, just keep growing behind that that uh, product vision. Let's switch to you, Michael. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something that you look up to and why. My previous company was um, acquired by by private equity and, and I stayed on and, and ran it for another two and a half or three years as, as part of a, a parent company. And the CEO of that parent company was a, was a man named Tony Eels. And I learned from Tony something that I, I hadn't learned in my previous 13 years, I guess, at that point as a founder, which was how to be just super, super focused on the two or three things that are really going to move the needle to the extent that you can kind of just let the other things go. And, you know, of course you have to pay attention to a, a, a broad realm of things and you have to help your team stay focused on a, on a lot of things. But in worrying about everything or in focusing on everything, you don't focus on, you know, the, the few things as closely as you should. I watched Tony do that and originally, I, I don't think I completely understood that, that dynamic, but as I watched him su- succeed in various areas where, you know, he was just doing this incredible job, it became pretty clear that a big part of that was his ability to just myopically choose the, you know, the, the one or two or three things that were really going to move the needle, focus on those, and just accept that some other things, although it would be neat if we could fix everything at the same time, some other things were just going to have to get let go for a little while. I watched that, I guess, up close in a way that made me internalize it, and it has made me a much better CEO than I was, um, you know, previous to that experience. So. That's a pretty that's a pretty narrow answer perhaps but but I think that and probably some similar things in other people that I've worked with through through the years are, are, are the things that have shaped me into a better and better leader and a, a better and better um, you know operator of businesses well we talked about a mistake earlier but this is a little different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do different or where would you consider taking a different approach if I go back through my career, and go back to the beginning, which, you know, like I said, was kind of founding that previous company. That company was undercapitalized early in its growth, where we had product market fit, and I don't think really recognized it in our in our naivete. And I think had we understood what I understand pretty well now, it would have been a faster growing company sooner had we capitalized it correctly had we taken on you know investment had we stopped bootstrapping before we did etc and so i suppose if i was going to kind of replay my career i i think you know that was something where probably for two or three years we we could have moved the needle in a way that i didn't then understand 
when we did bring in institutional capital, we, we watched all of that happen, and that was that was great and super rewarding, but it, it was a couple years after it really needed to be. So that that's probably the you know the, the number one thing. I certainly don't harbor any you know regret or anything over it. I think I've had a journey that I'm super pleased with and super uh, fortunate to have had the opportunities I've had. But uh, you know, if there's one tactical thing to have done differently, that's probably it. Well, well, last question, Michael. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I am a person who believes that if you focus on solving a real problem for a real customer, a lot of other things just take care of themselves. And so I guess, you know, especially for early stage companies, I, I just always advocate for focus as much as you possibly can on product, focus on product through the eyes of the customer as much as you possibly can, and ignore a lot of the rest of the noise out there. You can focus all day long on investors, you can focus all day long on the noise in the world, but focus on customers, focus on product, the rest takes care of itself, I think would be my, um, would be my big picture advice. Solid advice. Well, Michael, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Prismatic. Thank you for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.